This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Here we are again, Anthony. Once again. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a little while, yeah. Thank you, everyone out there, for sticking around and still subscribing. Yeah, thank you for sticking with us. We know we haven't released an episode in a while. We have a nice bank of episodes coming up, so we're going to try to release them a little bit more consistently. Yeah, we'll, we will try. You know, we appreciate that you stick around, though, because these are still coming. We've, been, we've had very nice, consistent listenership, and we're happy to see that continue and uh, potentially grow. So tell your friends. Uh, again, rate, subscribe, like us. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, we Did we start an Instagram? Oh, uh, no, man. What? How we, old are we? We might start an Instagram We soon. should. We'll, t- we'll let you all know when we get on that. And Do we maybe, have a LinkedIn? Maybe a Snapchat. Ooh. Yeah. Do we need that? I don't know. Let us know. Yeah, let us know if you want us to get a Snapchat. We'll think about it. I think we have enough portals at this point. All right, man. What do we got on the table for today's episode? So I got a good one for you today. I spoke with Dr. Adam Ghazali, who is a professor at University of California, San Francisco. His work has been focused on looking at ways of enhancing cognition in healthy adults and ways of reversing cognitive decline in age. And he does it with a unique thing that we haven't really talked about before, which is video games. Video games. Video games. I never really thought that they were being productive cognitively. You didn't? I wanted to believe that, (laughs) but I didn't have any evidence of that. You You were Agent Mulder on that aspect. Yes. Yeah, you wanted to believe. Exactly. (laughs) So now we're talking about uh, a lab that uses video games to enhance cognition. So it turns out there is a lot of research into it. Yay. And the consensus is, yes, there are many aspects of cognition that video games can improve. This may not be that surprising because games are a gigantic challenge on lots of forms of cognition. Very precise hand-eye coordination, very precise timing. Two. Two. Three. Let's, Let's list five. Let's see. Three, they look cool. Oh, so, they look cool. Awesome. So uh, visual four, four. stimulation, audio stimulation. And five. Um, uh, what? You got it. Come on. Um, social interaction. Exactly. Bam. Social interaction. Video, yeah. ga- video games can have a huge array of challenges. So most video game design is comes about it from kind of a commercial or artistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's coming at it with a clinical perspective in okay. mind. Can we develop a video game that is, number one, not only fun to play, and it turns out that's probably the most challenging thing to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's make it actually fun to play, and two, has components towards it that are cognitively enhancing. Yeah. And then there's a third component I forgot to mention. <laughs> Three. Land on me. Five more components. Third, no. <laughs> Just, there's no, a third, just the third. There's a third important component that he utilizes, and that's feedback. So okay. in video games could actually, with the correct setup, be monitoring your progression and actually potentially monitoring some of your physiological reactions, heart rate, EEG. So that could be looking at brain rhythm states with the contemporary wearable electronics that pick up on physiological 
properties, you can actually develop video games that are not only enhancing cognition, but are picking up on how well you're doing and sort of, you know, alter the game as it's happening. Yeah. All of our phones have accelerometers now. So that's a source of data. People have Fitbits and whatnot. So yeah. Yeah. Imagine a game that is, is reacting to how you're not only performing, but how your body is reacting to it. And then is adapting towards that. That would give you this incredible amount of control and would allow you to potentially enhance cognition in a much more effective way. And in fact, I believe he mentioned that he does work in the VR space, virtual reality with things like the Oculus Rift. So you can put somebody in an entirely virtual environment. Yeah, which is very immersive. And these are now reaching the consumer now. So these you know, virtual reality sets are going to be not just in a lab, but might be in your home someday pretty soon. If we can tap into a video game that's fun to play and is helpful for enhancing cognition in a healthy state or preventing the sort of decline of cognition that happens with age, this is going to be a very valuable type of treatment that is an alternative to some of the pharmaceutical-based treatments that most things work through today. I am hooked. You get your get out your Oculus Rift. Okay. Or your HTC I'm putting it on right now. Let's strap in. Will this thing perk my cochlea? <laughs> That's the one thing that we need to get. Okay. Perklea cokers. Cochlea perkers. So get ready for my interview with Dr. Ghazali. Could you first introduce yourself, say your name, and like you're all of the, I know that actually you're part of lots of things, so maybe <laughs> tell us all the job titles that you currently have. Professor of Neurology, Physiology, and Psychiatry at UCSF. I'm the director of our Neuroscience Imaging Center and a new interactive media lab called the Neuroscape Lab, and I run a pretty big cognitive neuroscience translational lab uh, as well. The first thing I'd like to talk about is the current state of affairs of how we're treating cognitive problems. Where, where are we at now in 2016, and how can we take this to the next level? Yeah, I think that we, we have a very poor approach to treating cognitive deficits. We don't use cutting-edge neuroscientific tools to understand in the real world, we do in the research lab, what's happening inside someone's brain that leads them into a doctor's office in the first place. And so we, we don't have the rigorous approach to understanding the neural changes that are associated with the behavioral changes on an individual level. But that doesn't prevent us from treating. And when we treat, we have had almost a completely siloed approach to using small molecules to improve cognition. But we know that we have not had a major win, even 50 years of effort. And um, for the most part, they're incredibly non-targeted. They don't act at the real computational unit of the brain, the neural network, but more generally to neurotransmitter systems. And we have to boost our doses to very high levels to get the effects that we're looking for. And then we want up getting just as many side effects. And the whole system is based on non-personalized data that really ignores all individual variability that's going to be critical for 
you know, really having strong impact. So I'd say we need to reinvent that system and at least have another approach that complements it. And so that's what my lab has been working on, ways of using technology to improve cognition that could either act in concert with our current small molecule approach or even as a replacement. So one of the technologies that I know that you've really embraced to do this is using video games. Could you tell us why you embrace this? Do you have a history in that field? Or did, did you just see them and were inspired and thought that that would be kind of the right approach? Yeah, my inspiration using video games are from a couple different inputs. So the first was a, a literature that I wasn't involved in that was really pioneered by Sean Green and Daphne Bevelay, showing that first-person shooter video games was having a positive impact on cognitive control abilities in the young people that played them. And so here are consumer games that are not targeting neural you know, optimization or, or any type of cognitive system. They're really trying to be entertainment tools, having a benefit. So that was intriguing. I also you know, have been involved in creating cognitive paradigms for cognitive neuroscience experiments for many years. And so I was already familiar with the building of software to create interactivity. I enjoy doing it. I think I was good at it. And so the idea was that we can use interactivity through software, like a paradigm, to activate a neural network selectively, unlike what we can do with a drug, at least any drugs that we have right now, and that that would be a way of challenging the brain in a very selective way. But we're not going to use our paradigms because they're so boring that no one would ever engage with them <laughs> deeply enough or for long enough to, to have any benefit. These are ones that if you went to a traditional like neuroscience lab and you walked in, I mean, I don't know if anyone in the audience has seen them, but usually they're like, follow the square on the, and it's two dimensional and they're... Yeah. Right, right. So they're, you know... They're probably designed by grad students. Or, yeah, and, and the only way that someone would ever engage in them is if they're being paid. Yeah. Right? And so that's not what we we're looking for. But the idea that a paradigm does activate a network is the exciting piece. And so it's really a merge of those two things. Mm. Let's use the very careful type of design that goes into making a interactive experience that activates a network like we do when building psychological paradigms. But let's use a lot of the design elements, the art, the story, the music that goes into video games and the reward cycles mm -hmm. to create something that's really, truly immersive. Uh, so that was the initial inspiration was to bring the art of video games and that those tools that have shown impact and then the experience and building paradigms together. And maybe this is like a philosophical question, but it seems like the games were made to entertain and they have this offshoot of being like enhancing. And is that with that goal in mind, should the audience know that coming into play or? Yeah, we don't think yeah. it matters so much, uh, but obviously that's something that we need to figure out. We build our games so that, that if you did not know that they were cognitive training tools, you would still be entertained and, mm -hmm. and, and hopefully want to play them. And it's a tall order, but it is our goal. I don't think you need to know a game is therapeutic in order to have benefit, and we've seen that with consumer games. So, you know, we're learning a lot more about that. It is possible that people that need to play a game for therapeutic purposes, having some elements of it that feel a little bit more like medicine is probably of value, but that's something that we're, we're trying okay. to figure out. Could be like a placebo or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, could you tell us then, how do you determine what's happening in the brain? And then once you know what's happening in the brain to improve, how are you able to like update that at a faster rate than what we currently have. Yeah, so all of our games are constructed with every parameter under our control. The timing, the spatial localization, the nature of the stimuli. And so we can time lock events in the brain to any one of those events in the game. 
And, you know, so the games are constructed to be played during a neural recording environment, if that's what we wish. And that allows us to see changes that occur during gameplay. But most frequently, we will do other tasks that we're trying to, hopefully trying to improve by gameplay before and after training as well. So we could do the recording, what we call outcome measures that are done as a pre and a post test, or we could record brain activity during the training period itself. And then based on that data, we start learning the active ingredients of the game that might have benefit and what are the mechanisms in the brain that leads to those effects. Once we learn that, then we could take those results and use it to guide our design principles of of future game development. And so over time, we're building a bigger toolkit of design elements that we have documented have an impact on, on neural mechanisms. For example, I think you showed a game, Neuro Racer, that mm-hmm. involved one kind of element where you're just like trying to stay on a track, and then the other element was mm-hmm. like signs would come by, two independent tasks, and then when you try to have them combine those two together, that was a metric that seemed to give you the most benefit. So that variable, right? You know, we call that like an active ingredient, borrowing that term from the drug world where you know, get a drug and it has lots of components and one's the active ingredient. On the back of the game, it's like active ingredient, right. yeah. lots of fun. And <laughs> exactly, exactly. Memory interference. <laughs> exactly. And okay. so we try to tease those apart by having other versions of the game that where we manipulate one of those factors. But the neural data comes in. So, for example, in that particular uh, game and study, which was in, in Nature in 2013, we showed that there was a improvement in a, a particular metric uh, activity measure that we recorded with EEG from the prefrontal cortex known as midline frontal theta. And then from that piece of information, we now are doing studies where during gameplay, we could stimulate the brain at that frequency using an electrical stimulator. So that gives that's an example of how understanding the neural system might even help us build something that's even more impactful. You know, these are done in labs and stuff. Can we talk about the emergence of these consumer technologies yeah, that sure. are now at the, in the home? So we're, we're, we're looking and tracking the high-tech world very closely. Being in San Francisco is certainly helpful because we're surrounded by many of these companies that are, are creating them, many startups and even the big companies. So the tools that we want to bring into our development pipeline are virtual reality and augmented reality. So ways of creating richer, more real-world environments that we could present to our participants during our studies and other tools to record information about how a person is changing in a richer way. So for example, a wireless physiological devices, wearables, which have largely been used for more esoteric quantified self movements and things that are sort of hard to make actionable, we think would be really amazing pieces of data to drive our game. And then as well as that is motion capture and even eye capture. And, you know, those wearable physiological devices could even be EEG recording. So a lot of the games too, I mean, that currently exist are screen-based do you feel that we could move, maybe move beyond that, where the game would sort of be the way in which you interact with the world normally, sort of yeah. elements or I mean, something? I, there, I think it's yeah. a really attractive idea. The idea, you know, the the whole potential that people are just going to be stuck on screens even longer from the things we're creating is not so exciting to me. I think that we need to interact in the real natural world as, as much as possible. It's challenging for me to think about the type of game mechanics that we create being outside of the digital environment because they rely on such rapid updating of data and the interaction. 
And so that closed loop is like our core mechanic, and it's hard to imagine that type of updating in the real world, but mm. certainly not impossible. But more and more, we are developing games that have people doing things that are closer to the real world, like especially our motion capture games, where we're getting people to stand up and move around and get their heart moving. So I, I think that we, we'll move more in that direction as, as we go forward. Great. Could you... Give us maybe one example of a game that incorporates, yeah, now like physical motion, motion capture with yeah. the game elements and what that hopes to achieve. Yeah, so we have a game called Body Brain Trainer, which we call BBT. And BBT is designed to challenge you both physically and cognitively in one integrated game environment. So we use the Connect motion capture, which is part of the Xbox system. So again, a consumer-facing device. We like that. We'll do these studies in people's homes once we figure out if and how it works. And what you do in BBT is you, you play a game where you're being challenged cognitively in an adaptive way, meaning that as you get better, the game scales the challenge to your performance. And so it's constantly pushing you right at that edge of your ability. But in BBT, you respond not with your fingers, but with the button presses you normally do in a game, but with your entire body. So what we can do is not just feed your cognitive performance into the game engine, but also feed your heart rate into the game. And we do that through recording with a wearable device. The game is aware of your heart rate in real time and then can adjust the amplitude and frequency of your movements to drive your heart rate up. And once we hit goal heart rate, which is determined beforehand using a VO2 max recording, we can then titrate down your heart rate to get you right in that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a game that's both cognitively and physically adaptive to you as you change. Um, the hypothesis is that your learning curves will be accelerated if you're physically embodied in the game and not just playing with your fingers. So we're trying to see if we can improve cognitive outcomes and learning through movement and physical engagement. That's awesome. And, and one more thing I want to just bring up is your involvement with the drummer from the Grateful Dead. Can you talk about that game a little bit and yeah. what that's like and if you've been a Grateful Dead fan for a yeah. while? <laughs> I, I've always appreciated the Grateful Dead. I'm a big fan of live music, but I would be what you would think of as a deadhead. Okay. I've only seen them once before, but I was really excited to meet Mickey Hart. We were introduced to each other to give a talk together at the AARP, and we became really good friends and had lots of common interests. And Mickey's always been interested in the potential of rhythm as a tool to improve health beyond its its entertainment value, always has been testified in front of Congress in the early 90s about this. And so when he told me this, I was really intrigued because I was aware that music therapy had been around for a long time, but was also under the impression that there wasn't really very strong empirical data about what it's doing and how well it works. And so the uh, idea came to me that we can build a rhythm training game to help people become more rhythmic and then look at to see what benefit that has on their the functioning of their brain and their cognitive abilities. And so we've been working with Mickey as well as other musicians. Rob Garza from Thievery Corporation is one of our big collaborators. And we are now finished game development. We're in the very final stages of beta testing. And then we'll advance with a full-scaled, you know, randomized double-blind control study to see how a game that makes you more rhythmic uh, benefits your, your mind. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Maybe if we could maybe go back and track the history of how you... Sure. Uh, could you could you tell us where you grew up and maybe like what your parents did? Yeah, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, my parents weren't in science or medicine. Um, they actually... I'm actually the first person in my family to go, to go to college. But they were very hardworking and, you know, really had a lot of respect for education and always in, instilled it in... in 
you know, me and, and my sisters. And I lived in Queens when I was young. I went to high school in the Bronx. It was a, almost a two-hour commute in each direction for me to go to high school, which uh, only... In the snow. And yeah. No. <laughs> only someone completely naive could do a four-hour commute. It's something that no adult can ever do. I would never do that now, obviously. <laughs> but somehow I convinced myself that that's what There's I... There's probably not many other options. <laughs> yeah. It was just where I wanted to go. It was the best school that I got into. And um, so I traveled there, did that. And I was always interested in science since I was a little kid. I, I didn't add an interest for medicine until I was uh, in college. And then at some point, the idea of being both a physician and a scientist was was attractive to me to do uh, research that was not just fascinating, but also impacted people's lives in a positive way. So I was always driven by that desire to do the type of work that helped people. With that in mind, how did you decide to integrate those two? Did you do a scientific career in medicine as were your training, right? Yeah, so I did an MD-PhD. My PhD was in neuroscience. And after the medical part of it, I went on to a full residency training in neurology at Penn. When I think back on it, it was like being in, in a war. You know, it was like wartime. You know, I mean, no sleep, people are dying. It was a very, very intense part of my life. But I learned a lot there. And I also gained a, a real sensitivity for the human condition and really my desire to help people once again. So much so that I moved from animal research into human research when I did a postdoc after that at Berkeley and started learning the tools of human neuroscience, like functional MRI, EEG, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and continued a career of my own when I launched my lab at, at UCSF in cognitive neuroscience. But even there, um, after having my lab launch in that way after five years, realizing that I still wasn't doing what I ultimately wanted to do, even though I, I think our research research was important and was really informing a lot of uh, understanding about the basic mechanisms of how neural networks lead to behaviors like attention and memory, we weren't really touching people's lives as directly as I wanted to. And that led to the sort of shift into what I now describe as translational neuroscience, where we work not just to understand the brain, but actually to improve its function. What do you think some of the major barriers are? Because I think at the end of the day, lots of scientists, what we study, I would say ultimately is either to just understand it from an information perspective, but a lot of people do have this altruistic, we want to do something that translates into a benefit down the road. What are the barriers that stop people from doing that, you think? You know, doing both is, is rare, I think. Uh, we have an advantage in that, you know, we're not working with small molecules that could be dangerous, that go through a whole preclinical animal research phase of testing. We could advance into human research immediately. And so our pipeline from, you know, sort of invention to research to clinical translation could be all done over like, we don't know the answer to that yet, because we're still doing it. But I believe it could be done over like, you know, five years, or eight years, as opposed to much longer. And this is because it's game development. It's not yet yeah, invasive but, in that certain Exactly, because it's not as invasive as other devices and drugs. So we, we, we can move more rapidly. Not that it's easy. Yeah. Both <laughs> the development and the validation process still takes a lot of time to do right. But you could move more rapidly. You could do it within one person's career. And we're getting better and better at doing that. But, you know, even, even for us, the desire to do translational work is, is still very challenging. 
the academic environment is not well suited to create and develop. It's, be, it's more suited for research. And that's fine if you want to use other people's tools. But if you want to use your understanding of your field, like in our case, neuroscience, to inspire the creation and development of new tools and then validate them, it's really hard to do. Um, it's hard to get funding for research that involves development on top of the empirical work. And so we had to develop a whole new pathway of funding that involved a lot of philanthropy uh, to get development underway so that we could then show that we were having some influence uh, on our participants, some positive influence to then get more traditional NIH-funded money. The other challenge is that these experiments are very long and they're very risky. And so we had to restructure our lab model away from where, you know, the, the situation where everyone's coming in and leaving two years later or one year later or three years later into a lab where people look at it as a career position and they're here for a long, the long haul. And so they're willing to step up and do a study where they know that they're not going to have a paper for five years. And so we restructured the lab. We have a lot of um, assistant professors. We have five faculty members in the lab. And even a lot of our research associates are looking at it as career positions. We hire programmers and engineers. And so in some ways, it's structured a little bit more like a company. But we are an academic lab at a university. And so that allows us to do things both from a funding perspective and from a timescale perspective that most other academic labs are just not willing to do. Do you get inspired to to just sort of try to put this out there to as many people as possible and just allow that like people to come to you? Yes. Or are you, is that how it works? Yeah. yeah, I never seek out collaborators. I find yeah. it a very ineffective way to form a partnership. We're very busy with both our development and validation. And, and in my experience, when someone reaches out to us and they say, I get it. I love this. I want to do this. Those usually work really well as partnerships for us. And so we usually supply the expertise in terms of getting uh, them up and going and uh, sometimes, you know, advise through the whole process. Sometimes uh, faculty from our lab might be on those papers and collaborators. And so it's, you know, it's very based on a case-by-case basis. But for the most part, we wait for someone to say, wow, I get this and I want to work with you. Where do you draw your inspiration for either developing a game or tackling a problem or even spending time at one research area and then giving talks because yeah. this morning you, I heard that you give like you know 70 talks in a year or something yeah. that must be yeah. like very exciting and yeah I mean in terms of picking new games I usually take the first shot of game design yeah. and then present it to the team and then obviously we just grow a multidisciplinary group around the creation, iteration, you know, the whole development process. So you're sketching up like I do, just like... Yeah, really, I'm, usually, you know. I'm usually driven by the neural systems. I'm trying to look for neural systems that are vulnerable, that I think could be optimized, that when deficient really impact people's lives. So we almost always look at cognitive control or attentional systems. And then when I start with a a type of cognitive operation and underlying neural system that I think would be important to optimize, I try to think about what type of gameplay, what type of interactivity would activate that system selectively. And then what would be the platform and delivery and 
all the other mechanics that go into creating a game from reward cycles to art to story to music and slowly put together the entire game. Um, and obviously seek funding and all those fun parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's that's you know what we do a lot of. Um, and then, you know, years pass as we develop and then do the research studies. I mean, in terms of my own life, you know, we have uh, such a great lab now of high performance people that I have freedom to travel and bring in new ideas from, you know, many different sources that we might not expect. So a lot of my travel takes me around the world. It takes me presenting to very different audiences from tech to business to education to medicine. And all of those interactions open up new ideas that we bring back to the lab and try to use to elevate us, you know, to the, to the next level. One of the things you mentioned at the end, too, was an initiative now to help change education systems. Yeah. It seems like that's a tremendously huge place where there's all these young brains in education system that probably need intervention maybe the most. And yeah. there's like probably not that much real sophistication in that. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. You know, I'm being a neurologist, I always thought about what we were doing as therapeutic tools for people that had deficits. And it, it, was bro it was already broad because we were looking across conditions as diverse as ADHD and PTSD and traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease and anxiety disorder and depression. So it was already a lot. And then I started getting invited to give keynotes at education conferences. And I was like, I'm not in education, you know, I'm out of my element, I don't feel comfortable with. And they're like, we want to hear about how you can improve attention and memory. I mean, that's part of what we think of as education. And I sort of reluctantly started giving talks in that domain. And it was, you know, very soon after that, I realized how tremendous the need was, and not just improving cognition and people who are suffering deficits, but improving information processing in young, healthy, developing minds and how we have really neglected that in our traditional educational approach, much more, much more devoted to the transfer of information content than really building the underlying systems that that depends on. And I realized that the tools that we're creating both on the assessment and on the enhancement side for deficits might have great impact as a new approach to education. And so now we're, we're, we're into it. We have a faculty member devoted to it. We have some funding from the NSF to get started. And we are going to move aggressively into the education space. That's wonderful. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, we know a lot about development and the young brain is the, the most plastic, basically, at that point right. in time. If you can intervene at those levels and set up, you were talking about cognitive domains that were just like empathy and what other kinds of wellness. Yeah techniques, what do we know about how those develop and what we can do to enhance those in a you know normal or healthy population seems there's, like? There's so much to do. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a really, really exciting opportunity. And I think it's well recognized that it's an area of need. Yeah. And so we're very enthusiastic about that work. I guess kind of just to wrap up, you've talked about like live music. That's a, I'm assuming something you enjoy doing. Could you tell us highlights of, do you yeah. play, do you, are you a musician? At no, all? I'm not a musician. It's yeah. like that one thing that I don't do, but I love experiencing. Yeah. Everything else I feel like I do. So it's sort of almost relaxing that. I'm not a musician. Maybe you'll get good at rhythmicity. Yeah, and exactly. Turn into a drummer. Yeah, I'm and... pretty good at rhythmicity. I play it a lot. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, 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 I like festivals. I like the social aspect. Um, there's many of them. I'm, uh, you you come know, to Austin at all for them? I do. Or, yeah. I come to Austin. I guess you've been to South by, I'm right? at South by. You know, I give talks here pretty much every year. Um, I go to Coachella every year. I go to Outside Lands every cool. year. Um, so yeah, I, I 
I love it. And music is, is such a big part of my life. I listen to it while I work um, and while I write. Are you a vinyl um, junkie or do you have... No, uh, I, yeah. I'm like sort of a streaming music aficionado right now. No, you can I'm get, a, you can get more of them. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I'm also very interested in new music. I'm, oh, like my, one of my hobbies is just you know trying to find like unheard of bands that I like. So you know, streaming music is pretty fun for that. Oh, I, I yeah. agree. Yeah. The new technologies have come out a lot of that process yes, now. A lot. Exactly. It's been discovery. going all day where you have to go yeah, to the record store. Yeah, and... yeah. The discovery process is, is is a lot of fun. Awesome. Any other things that when you're not doing everything that you're doing in your normal day to day that you like to <laughs> talk about? Um, I really, I had a career and still a great interest in photography, um, nature photography. So I had a company called Wanderings that was a big part of my life close to 15 years ago. And I'm starting to couple that into my travels now. So when I go to give lectures and travel around the world, I always try to set some time aside to do some nature photography. So That's great. it's fun to bring that sort of artistic part of my life back into my, into my world. Wonderful. Is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't really... No, I, I think that it's a, it's a really exciting time in neuroscience as we see all of these really amazing technologies largely positioned for consumers that can be tools in our field. And I encourage uh, young scientists to think broadly about what it means to be a scientist and to know that you can work in a lab and have a you know classic academic principal investigator position and become a faculty member. And you can also do work that is aligned with industry, but still is neuroscience, that that's still possible. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that. And it's only going to become more exciting as we move forward. Wonderful. Adam, thank you so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. It was fun. Thanks for listening. If you would like to learn more about our guest or the science we talked about today, check out our website, brainpodcast.com. We are on Facebook and at Brain Podcast on Twitter, so go follow us there. And if you like Brain Matters, please leave us a nice review on iTunes. It helps a lot. It will make you feel good, and it makes us feel especially good. Thanks. The music you heard on today's episode was recorded and performed by myself, so I hope you enjoyed. We'll see you next time.